You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z, and welcome to part two of our interview with talented drummer-producer Gary Burke. You know, another artist you worked with, Gary, was Patti Smythe. Oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was a while ago. Yeah, but I forgot I re- all about that. I remember that. And was this just touring, or did you guys uh, make a record? No touring. I think Eddie was producing that. Eddie Ryansdale. I don't know whatever happened to that. We did um, six or seven tracks. We did that in New York. Did it become a record? I can't tell you. I don't know if the stuff you played on did, but she released a record right around that time. She had a big single. It was a duet with her and Don Henley. I can't think of the name of it. I don't know if it was on that record or not, but yeah, I don't know. I can't say. Well, you know, a lot of things uh, they uh, you can be called in to do sessions. Sometimes you don't make the final cut or. Uh, they ran out of money or they started screaming at each other, the record company and the artist, and, mm-hmm. and they tell each other to get lost. And so all this stuff sits on a shelf somewhere for long periods of time sometimes. So I can't tell you whatever happened to those sessions, but I think we did about six or seven songs. I remember doing them at a studio down in the village. They were very good. She was very good. Oh, yeah. What a singer. Yeah. Yeah, what a singer. And I believe um, Ed Reinsdale was the producer on that. Another name on my list, another local boy that I believe you worked with at some point in the past. Uh, his name escapes me right now. It's uh, Bob Dylan. What was that like? A local boy. <laughs> <laughs> People ask, they, they, they come up and say, well, what's it like working with Bob Dylan? You know? And I said, it was, it was uh, the greatest jazz gig I ever did. <laughs> How so? <laughs> and they look at me like, like you know, I get the RCA Victor dog look back, you know? <laughs> a little tilt of the head, yeah. and I'm like, you messing with me? <laughs> and uh, it's just uh, what I mean by that is actually, Levon Helm summed it up great, you know, in a look. Uh, when I came off of Rolling Thunder, uh, I did two records for Scarlet Rivera for Warner Brothers, and we were on the road with that. We had a day off in Philly. And the last waltz was playing. Uh, it had just come out. And so we went to see it. And, of course, you know, Dylan's in there, as he is wont to do. Right in, You can tell right in the middle of everything. It was scripted what he was supposed to do. And he decided, I'm not going to do that now. Mm-hmm. And, he, and, of course, at that point, nobody knows what's next, you know. And the camera pans. You can see Levon in the back. And his eyes get as big as saucers. <laughs> he's thinking, what the heck is happening here? No one knew. And so, and I said, that's it. That's the look. And so, you know, when, when we did the Rolling Thunder thing, we had like a, a, a pretty big band on stage. But quite often, you know, if things weren't going well, uh, uh, Bob would stop the song and just start something else, you know. And you were expected to know what the something else was. You know, you had to know within a couple beats like what was going on. That's nerve-wracking. Yeah, but the thing is, so so getting back to like it was the greatest jazz gig I ever did is because you just never knew what was next, you know? And All it was, improv. Here. It was totally, not that there weren't playlists, it's just that because of his personality, uh, a playlist becomes pretty, shall we say, loose. Mm-hmm. You know, like a set list, I should say, not a playlist, a yeah. set list. So, you know, it was great. It was, uh, if you ever see a performance with him, you'll notice that the eyes of the musicians on stage 
never stop following him wherever yeah. he is. Nobody, there, there's, you're never taking a moment for granted. If I'm not mistaken, you're on the Hard Rain's Gonna Fall live album. That's right. right, yeah. Along with, I think there was another drummer on there too, Jim Keltner or Jim Gordon, one of the Jims. No, Howie Wyeth. Oh, Howie Wyeth was on yeah. there. Yeah, Howie Wyeth, who is no longer with us, and uh, Howie, also a left-handed drummer, by the way, as I am, and a great, great player. The, the thing about Howie is that he was an incredible stride piano player too i mean he could do the, the he could do the whole art tatum thing and wow and, and and stuff so a lot of times he would go over and play piano i'd go play drums and you know we'd we'd be roaming back and forth it was like this bullpen thing going on stage you know because of his piano playing his drumming was very harmonious, you know. What I mean, it was like there was harmony, there was melody in his playing. You could hear it all the time, you know. And uh, his fills were lyrical, you know. There, there. It wasn't just like uh, like an AK forty seven taken off, you know, on somebody. It was, it was beautiful, beautiful to watch. And he would sit down and he would take one of his Ked sneakers off and put it on a <laughs> snare drum, and that was his muffler. And, uh, <laughs> And off we go. <laughs> I had uh, Cindy Cashdollar on the show a couple months ago, and I was asking her about her work with Dylan. And I had asked her, I've heard these stories about musicians that, you know, were made to sign these papers saying they, they wouldn't talk about the sessions or they wouldn't show anyone pictures or they wouldn't take any pictures. And, and I asked if she had to deal with any of that stuff. And she said, yeah, I heard a lot of that, but, I, but that wasn't my experience. My experience was the opposite of that. Uh, did, did you ever have to do anything like that? No. When I joined Rolling Thunder, it had become this very big thing. It was the equivalent of like, uh, in terms of the amount of people on the road traveling, there had to be 80 to 100 people. Oh, it yeah. Was, it was just, yeah. it was like Mad Dogs and Englishmen. As a matter of fact, it's probably like the last hurrah for that kind of stuff, you know? where there would be loads of semi-trailers and, and buses and uh, all kinds of peripheral people and all the, the... I mean, he wasn't afraid to bring in characters either. I mean, you know, there was tour astrologers and uh, tour doctors. Seems like Dylan liked that kind of chaos. Maybe it was... It oh, something. he loved chaos. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. So it was, it was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I'll never do anything again that would be like that. Guaranteed. A lot of great names, uh, great artists on that tour. I mean, Joni Mitchell would show up for yep. some, some of the dates, and Joan Baez, and uh, Ramblin' Jack Elliott, I think. Right. I mean, there's tons uh, of people. Well, I mean, even in the band itself, you have, like, T-Bone. Yeah. You know? Uh, it, was, it was a great band. Uh, Mick Ronson was there. Patti Smith was there in the first half. Uh, then, then she left. There was always a cast of characters. Again, I could talk about Dylan all day, but I won't. Until he comes on the show, then, mm -hmm. then that will be fine. Another name on this list that is pretty prominent, really, in your career at this point, because I, I think it's been a long time you guys have been playing together, is Professor Louie and the Chromatics. Right. Well, that's, that's, that's what I do now. You know, I don't, I don't really freelance anymore. And Professor Louie and the Chromatics, uh, of course, John Platania is in there with us. And I kid Johnny, he's still on probation. Um, <laughs> it's been about six years, but wow, I, okay. I tell him soon he'll be off. You okay. Know, he'll... If, he, if he keeps it up, you know, he's got, <laughs> he's got to maintain his performance level. Yep. And uh, Marie and Louie and uh, Frank Campbell on bass. And it's been um, a great 
uh, run. It's actually Rick Danko is responsible for the band. Rick, just before he passed, put the band together. Uh, he had a deal, uh, a record deal at that time, and then he sort of cherry picked who he wanted and put the band together. We did about a half a record. And and he died, and we're 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 you know s- standing there looking at each other like what do we do now, and the record company was very encouraging, and they said look you just you guys keep going without him you know, and so what we did is we finished that record, we culled a bunch of vocals off of live performances, and uh, did a number of tracks where we we cut the music to his vocal that had been like pulled from some cassette tape at a club or something like that, you know? And uh, so there's a handful of tracks like that. And some of the stuff, we did about half a record in the studio with Rick, and then we finished it without him and uh, then moved on to just doing uh, chromatics songs from that point on. Speaking of Rick Janko for a second, I know it's funny, we were just talking about The Last Waltz, which was... You know, supposed to be the band's last gig. As it turns out, without Robbie Robertson, they kind of continued on and off for a while. And I, I could be wrong about this, but I, I thought you you drummed with the band for a while. As I'll call it, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe like a pickup drummer because they used a lot of them, Randy yeah. Chalante and a lot yeah. of people. Yeah. Well, um, I wouldn't put myself in the category of a regular like Randy was. But uh, occasionally they'd be in trouble. Someone wouldn't show up, and you go in and you do you, you do the do the gig, you know. So yeah, we did. I did stuff with the band. I did stuff with Rick. I did stuff with Garth, and uh, it's just something you kind of do if you live in Woodstock, you know. It's yeah. it's part it, at that time. It was it's part of what you did, you know. They the needed, rite of passage. They needed a, a helping hand. You go help them. Yeah, you know. It's that simple. Uh, great guys to work with, I can imagine. Yeah. I worked with Rick Danko a little bit and Garth Hudson, and my band opened for the band in '94. No kidding. Uh, yeah. Where? Uh, to Chance. <laughs> yeah. It was quite a night. It was quite a night. Yeah. Uh, Levon, I remember, punched me on the arm, and he, he said, "Good job, young man," and g- gave me that Levon smile. And man, when Levon does that, it's like, then you can go home and die, and you'd be all right. Yeah. Yeah. You know. Back to the Chromatics. There's a single. I'll call it a single, uh, going around, making a little noise on the blues charts. And WKZ, a local station out of Red Hook, New York, right, our neighbor, they've been playing uh, playing it like crazy, right? Yeah. What's, yeah. what's well, going and, on with this? And record? also, uh, I mean, KZ is great. We love KZ. They love us. Yeah. Uh, we, we have a great time with them. And it gives it the thing, they provide a base for us, you know. And so what has happened with this record and the the cut is called uh, Funky Steampunk Blues. It's an odd song, I have to say. It's, you might even call it a novelty, uh, or they used to call these things novelties. I mean, it's just, I don't know what to make of it, you know? It's, it's its own thing. But we've managed to stay on the blues charts nationally for about five months now. Wow. The radio promotion behind the record has long since ended, so it's got this life of its own at this point which is nice, and we'll just see what happens. So, so we just, you know, sort of uh, going off that, going off that energy. Well, it hasn't ended entirely because we're about to play it on this show. Okay. For, for whatever that's worth, <laughs> let's play it. Hit it.
funky steampunk blues. Dark heart, black heart, what's inside? You can have the blues, take them for a ride. On a wild west engine all alone. Shave my head, there was nothing to call. Steampunk blues, See the chromatics their name is out there all over the place you guys must play all the time we do about 150 dates a year that's a lot yeah you know especially at this age when i met you i was 21 22 i'm 50 years old now and i when i go i still play all the time and i'm standing there and just standing there with a guitar in front of a microphone i call it active standing but I mean, it gets to my back, <laughs> gets to my back, it gets to my knees, my ankles, my voice, everything about it. How do you keep up that kind of pace as you get older, especially? I mean, are there repercussions on your body? For, I mean, oh. drumming is not standing there holding a guitar. Yeah, it's a very no. physical thing to do. No, especially drums, you know. I always, I always equate it to, to like being a pitcher in baseball, you know. Mm -hmm. I've long since passed 40, you know, <laughs> which is sort of, you know, where pitchers drop off the charts, you know. Uh, uh, it's, the, the thing is, what's the alternative, you know? Yeah. I tried to retire for about 10 minutes, and I realized that 
this isn't going to end well if, if I keep this up, you know. And a funny thing happened where this guy who's, uh, this guy who's in the music business, uh, actually, I his name, Gary McKeever, and uh, he does some local promotion and things like this, and he said, retire. Musicians don't retire, they die. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? He's right. So, I mean, the, there's, it's like I do this or I do the other thing. But it's very difficult physically. Yeah, I would imagine so. I mean, it, it's yeah. physically difficult on me, and I have a pretty easy job holding a guitar. You know, a, a, you know a drums, you got to set them up, you got to break them down, you, you got to, it's a physical act, you know, hitting these drums. I, I, I can't imagine what that's like to do 150 shows a year. And, yeah. I remember John's wife, John Platanian's wife, just looked at him and said, what do you think, you're 17? <laughs> <laughs> well, musicians, uh, music keeps you young, uh, yeah. in my opinion. You well, know? Uh, I, I think that in his heart and soul he probably does. Yeah. I mean, when I play music, I, I feel like I'm 17. I'm not. I f later, I feel 95. Yeah. yeah. But I feel 17 while I'm doing it. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's the point. And, and a lot of musicians... Uh, it's not practical to retire because then you don't make any money. And, you know, for me, I'll, I'll, I'll be working until I'm 104 if I live that long. Um, but I don't really mind the thought of that. You know, I, I don't know what I would do to, if I had to stop doing this, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've, been, we've known each other a long time, Gary, and here we all are still doing projects. Yeah, um, here we are at the clubhouse. Here we are at the clubhouse. Our once old, again. Uh, once again, our old stomping grounds. I want to mention one other guy that you worked with uh, of particular interest to me, because he is me. Um, <laughs> you, you produced something of mine uh, quite a long time ago, and right. I, I find this very interesting. It's, it was 1991, and I have this old dog-eared invoice from the clubhouse the date on it is January 22nd, 1991. That's 29 years ago today. Yeah. Total coincidence. But can you believe it's like 30 years? Yeah. No. Uh, well, you know, that's like, uh, that's like perpetually 17, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean... Interesting, you know, we did a track with Joe called 19 Forever. Love it. You know, and uh, so when when we start ruminating like this, I, I think back to that track. Although I had no idea what he was getting at at the time. Makes sense to me now. Yeah, a lot of sense. Yeah. Well, he wasn't that old. I mean, he was 35. I think the line is, I'm never going to be 35 yeah. in that tune. And that's a great song. Yeah. Back to Rick Z. Not that I would rather talk about Joe Jackson than Rick Z any day, but... I have to bring this up because there was one song that I had written called Heaven and Earth. And Paul told me, he says, you're not going to show that song Heaven and Earth to Gary. We were considering tunes for the, uh, for the demo project. And I said, well, yeah, I think that's one of my best. And he says, don't play that for Gary. That's, Gary hates that small T shit or something like that. <laughs> and I, oh, all right, maybe I won't. And you came out to see me play. I was playing at uh, this uh, place, this Italian restaurant in Poughkeepsie. And you came out with your wife and listened to a set. And I, I remember that. You were evaluating, I think, what songs might be appropriate to do. And you said, hey, that song, Heaven and Earth, is that yours? And I sheepishly said, well, yeah. And you said, oh, we got we to gotta put that on the list. Uh, I was like, ah, uh, thanks, Paul, for the vote of confidence. <laughs> I don't know if you remember this. You had dubbed it Heaven and Hell. 
because we had such trouble mixing the tune. We were recording stuff on the song while we were mixing to try to make it work. I think my guitar part was so atrocious. You were just trying to, to find a way to produce the song, you know, because my parts were out of time, you know, or something like that. And 20 hours later, we finally had it mixed. I mean, 20 hours in, in total or something because we deconstructed it and we built it back up again. And you said, you know, I think this needs drums. Well, I worked with a drummer at the time in my band, Dan D'Elia. And he said to me when he heard Heaven and Earth for the first time, all I ask is you let me be the drummer on it. I said, oh, of course, of course, you know. And I was sitting next to you at the console and you said, I think it needs a drum track. How about I, I just go in there and put a drum track down? I was like, go ahead, you know. Sold Dan, rolled over on Dan immediately. And, uh, <laughs> you know, sure, go, that'd be great. And you went in there and played it and it's, it's, it's the best part of the song for my money. But I talked to Dan about it later. I said, hey, I'm really sorry. And he says, you know, if it was anyone but Gary, I, I would have been upset. Oh. <laughs> so he, he was a great admirer of yours and still is. I don't mean to embarrass you or anything, Gary. I was telling John Platania this too, but those days were very important for me. You got you, Paul, John, you guys were all mentors of mine. I tried to watch. I, I consider myself uh, like self-produced because... When you don't have any money, you self-produce your your own material. You self everything. You self everything, <laughs> exactly. Although I have, we have a caterer. Rusty's wife is our caterer for the show. So. But in any case, you were in the studio an hour, hour and a half, two hours before me and after me for every one of those sessions. I remember. And then you'd go home, and I'd call you on the phone and pick your brain about all the stuff. You were incredibly tolerant of my, all of my questions and me just bugging you all the time that meant the world to someone at 21 22 years old really at any age you guys were older guys you worked in the business you knew what you were doing and I, and I wanted to learn and I, I watched you like a hawk at those sessions and I still use things that I learned at those sessions still to this day so thank you so much for that Gary that well we we all we all do that you know like you asked me about uh, uh, working with other producers, you know, uh, you, you you pick and steal, you know. Uh, I think John Lennon said, uh, "Good uh, was it? Good composers borrow, great composers steal." You know? <laughs> <laughs> but the other thing is, you got us. You know, it's it's because we were interested in what you were doing too. You know, so uh, and also it was a it was kind of a great time because everybody had this outgoing spirit of they couldn't wait to get into the studio the next day. Yeah, I remember feeling that way. Yeah, boy, that goes a long way. It sure does. And and it was a classic time for the clubhouse because Upstate Studios was becoming the clubhouse at that time. Yeah, during that was sessions. the other clubhouse by the railroad tracks. In Germantown, New yeah, York. Yeah, right. great memories of that time period. Yeah. And, and uh, here's a blast from the past. I'm going to play Heaven and Earth right now. Ah. This is a production of Gary Burke's. Gary Burke on drums, I'm very happy to say. Ended up on an album of mine called And Now the Weather from 1994. Let's play it. It's a give and take about All your dreams were broken 
as I reached out for you. Not a word was spoken, but my voice came shining through. Somebody said they loved you, then took your heart and ran. Look at the sky above you, you know I'm gonna do what I can. And I'll take my chances, I'll gather them up for whatever they're worth. All romances, the will to move heaven and earth. It's a give and take, it's a For you, for you, I'm open for the fall. Not going to implore you, cause your back's up against the wall. And while the night is watching, watching, I'll take your hand in mine. Just take this heart to ponder. And you're welcome to take your time While I take my chances I'll gather them up for whatever they're worth All romances The will to move heaven and earth It's a give and take well, you gotta run about as fast as you can. You've gotta part the sea, gotta calm the land. Do anything that her heart desires. You gotta set the world, the world on fire. Yeah, I will. Uh, you know, Louie has his own uh, radio show on KZE, which is uh, on Saturday nights at 5 o'clock. It's a streaming show. And uh, he's been wanting me to do it, and I've never done it. He's been doing it now for like almost two years. I've never done it. So, But I'm just thinking now, this, this would be a great time to uh, resurrect some of those tracks you're talking about. So get that to me. Can you envision a time, Gary when you don't play drums anymore and you just produce exclusively? 
I don't know the answer. I thought I did at a certain point, but um, I don't know. It's hard to separate the two. I've tried producing records uh, where I didn't play on it, and it's very difficult because you get that itchiness, you know? You want to go in and rectify things right away, yeah. you know? You think like a drummer while you're producing. Yeah. Well, there you go. That's a very good point. And uh, the answer to that would be yes, I guess I do, you know? I always wonder about uh, drummers who are producers if they if they go through the same thing. I've never had an opportunity. Drummers rarely see other drummers, you know. There's very unusual if there's two drummers on the same date, you know. <laughs> so we don't get a chance to hang out with each other too much. So I don't know the answer to that question. It could happen, you know. I mean, there's a there's a physicality to playing drums. More so than other instruments, but uh, and you know I I won't uh, I guess I'll be honest about it. You know, over the last say uh, ten ten years or so, you know you start falling apart. You know things things stop working that used to you used to take for granted, and uh, you have to come up with workarounds uh, to to make that stuff happen. But the the beautiful thing that starts happening is a you don't care. And B, uh, you go into a m much more musical, less technical state of mind about your playing and about music in general. That's really, you know, quite a, as I said, a, a, quite a beautiful place to be in. And you're inside music like you've never been before. Is that where you are now? Yes. Yeah. And so consequently, it's, it, strangely, it's more enjoyable than it's ever been. That's very encouraging to hear because I, I you know, being 50 years old, I, I often think like, well, how much longer will I be doing this? And the answer I want to, to get to is, you know, for the rest of my life, because like I said before, I can't imagine not doing it, that I might feel 20 years from now that this is, this is the best I feel about it. Yeah, it's possible. If you want to keep this in the back of your head, is 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 the out the the way your outlook changes because you embrace music in a completely different way. It's quite extraordinary. It, 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 I mean, like for instance, I'll give you an example with the Chris Kraft record. Uh, working with these guys I worked with all my life in making this record, as I said before, they never cease to surprise you. But the my business is nonverbal communication. That's that's my business. That's what I've done all my life. What starts taking place is this starts happening with everybody around you who are in the same place, either physically or you know age-wise or just spiritually, and so you start operating on this kind of transcendent level where not much is spoken. You know, the music speaks for itself, and that's all you need, and you don't need anything after that. And it just, it's like this, uh, like this veil is lifted, you know? I love that. I'm not there yet, yeah. but I'm looking forward to getting yeah. there. And you will be. From 99 to 2002, I'd lost my voice. I wasn't able to, to play at all anymore. It was, it was terrifying. I just figured it was over and not sell insurance or something. I don't know. And... Finally, I was able to get my voice back enough to work, and I slowly... Was that something mechanical, or...? 
I, it was a reflux issue, and I didn't even know oh, it at oh, the okay. time. Yeah, it, yeah. it was destroying my vocal cords. And uh, <clears throat> I have really bad GERD runs in my family. And mm -hmm. In any case, when I was able to get it under control and kind of come back to it, I realized that up to that point, I was trying so hard to, to sell myself uh, as a musician and get somewhere, and it became about that hustle and not as much about the music anymore. And then when I got my voice back and started to play again, it was I didn't have a band, I was just playing acoustic guitar in places, getting my feet wet and trying to get my confidence back. But I realized something, I, I, I'm doing it because I love it. And that was a powerful lesson for me that, you know, this... I didn't care so much anymore about trying to sell a million records or, or be a rock star or any of that stuff. I, I'm not sure how important that was ever to, to me, really, but somewhat to some degree. You can get in your way. I can see that now, that you've got to be doing it for the right reasons. And, I mean, most musicians I know, myself included, it, they wouldn't be doing this if they didn't love it because it's, it's not easy and it's not lucrative always. And there's a lot of downtime <laughs> between gigs and there's a lot of... There's a lot of work that goes into it, and you don't always get the appreciation that you, you think you deserve. So It's a vocation. It's a vocation, and sometimes it's a job. And I accept that part of it wholeheartedly, and I love what I do. When I go out and I do a gig now, I feel like I'm in a trance, and when I wake up, the show's over. And, <laughs> and it's a great feeling because, like you said, you're inside the music. That's yeah. a great way of putting it. Yeah, Gary, this has been great. Uh, it's great to see you. Uh, thanks so much for coming today. I'm uh, uh, really glad I came over here. Thanks for asking me. Of course. Uh, you're one of my favorite people, one of my favorite musicians. Uh, it's just an honor to have you on the show, man. Well, good luck with this. Thank you so much. You're listening to The Rick Z Show. I'm your host, Rick Z. Produced and engineered every week by Rusty Johnson. And hey, thanks to Paul Antonell for hosting us here at the clubhouse tonight. Oh, don't forget to click subscribe. We need more followers. Come back next week, and I promise we'll have another uh, hopefully talented uh, Hudson Valley musician. I promise. They'll be talented. So come back and listen. We'd, we'd love that.